0: Hello and welcome to The Lancet podcast for the issue dated December the 2nd to the 8th. I'm Richard Lane. As December the 1st was World AIDS Day, this week's podcast relates to the content in this week's issue relating to HIV AIDS. In a moment, I'll be talking to the author of a viewpoint arguing that public health messages concerning condom use are missing the very important aspects of enjoyment relating to condoms and sexual activity. But first, this week we publish a randomised trial assessing the effect of a microfinance initiative and an educational programme to try and reduce intimate partner violence and associated HIV in rural South Africa. Earlier, I spoke to one of the study authors, Paul Pronick, from the University of the Witwatersrand and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and I began by asking him to explain the relationship between intimate partner violence and HIV in South Africa. Well, gender inequalities in terms of the unequal power relationships between
1: men and women is really felt to be one of the principal drivers of the HIV epidemic in in much of Southern Africa. And violence, of course, is just the end point and manifestation of of these gender inequalities. And while it's a really important major public health problem in its own right, studies from South Africa have shown that women who've been in an abusive relationship are
0: more likely to be HIV positive. And this study, the image study, this assesses the effectiveness of combining a microfinancing initiative with a training component. Uh, can you just define these interventions and, and also the setting in which the study was done? Sure. The, well, the image study stands for the Intervention with Microfinance
1: for AIDS and, and Gender Equity. And it was conducted in rural South Africa, up in the northeast, very near the borders of Zimbabwe and Mozambique. The area is amongst the poorest of the country, and like many rural homeland areas, you know there's very high rates of unemployment, sort of 40 to 50 percent, very little in the way of local economic development, high rates of labor migration, and a lack of basic infrastructure such as piped water. In terms of the intervention, as you mentioned, it had two components, a microfinance component and a training component microfinance isn't something that's come out of the public health sector at all. Rather, it's a development intervention and something that started up about 20 years ago uh, in Indian Bangladesh by someone named Muhammad Yunus, who was recently awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on the Grameen Bank. And what it involves is providing access to credit and saving services for poor people, predominantly women. The idea is that the poor generally have major difficulty accessing credit and they often don't have financial collateral to guarantee their loans so the way in which the model works and the way in which our partner organization in South Africa called Small Enterprise Foundation implements the program is that they use a form of peer collateral as a substitute for financial collateral so what this means is that while individual women get loans for income generating projects what happens is a woman's gotta get a loan with four of her friends and these group of 5 have got to repay the loans together in order to move up to the next loan cycle and that's a well established way of doing things in this context and using such an approach loan repayment rates are well over 99% so in terms of the training component what happens is in these groups of in these villages where the intervention is being implemented groups of women who are involved in the program meet together every two weeks to repay their loans and discuss new business ideas And these meetings provide an extraordinary opportunity to introduce the training component of the intervention. The training modules that we used in Image ran over the course of a year and had two phases. The first employed structured sessions using sort of traditional adult education techniques such as role plays, songs, body mapping. And the idea was to create a critical awareness around gender and HIV issues in the community. The second phase of the training was an attempt to work more directly with women around issues of community mobilization. So the idea was that the groups would discuss issues of common concern and common priority in their communities and develop what we called village-level action plans, which were creative ways in which these groups of women actually began engaging with the wider community around issues that they felt were priorities, which sometimes had a lot to do with gender and HIV and sometimes had nothing at all to do with them, um, unsurprisingly. And the idea of the intervention, the two components of the package, was that they provide both the means in terms of the resources and the empowerment and the knowledge in terms of the training to begin to address priority issues.
0: And how does this training actually relate to issues to do with uh, sexual activity and um, partner violence? The nature of the training was
1: very much around just trying to develop a critical consciousness. Um, and just let me give you some examples. We would do things like sing traditional wedding songs, which often convey very deeply rooted cultural attitudes about what's acceptable for a man and what's acceptable for a woman. We would do exercises, and, and we, we sort of unpack those those type of songs. We would do exercises such as body mapping, getting women to lie on the floor of their uh, loan center meeting, and other women would trace their body with a piece of chalk. And we get them to draw on the bodies what happens when you're menstruating, what happens when you're pregnant, what happens when you have a sexually transmitted disease, what happens when you're HIV positive, and use these as discussion starters to really get the women thinking about sort of what's biological, and what's social and the ways in which these things impact upon vulnerability to HIV in terms of themselves and, and their children.
0: One of the strengths, clearly, of your study, the image study, is that, that it is prospective and it's a randomized trial. Can you just briefly outline the methodology? It must be quite complex doing a randomized trial in this kind of setting.
1: Yeah, I mean randomized trials as you as you know are, are things that are often used to evaluate new medications for patients. Its use in, in evaluating the effects of public health interventions or economic interventions like this is much, much less common. But there's a growing body of uh, research that suggests that using this type of methodology is actually quite useful for assessing the impact of policy level interventions and major sort of development programs such as microfinance. What it what it means in our setting is that villages in the study area had no previous access to microfinance services at all, and villages were selected at random to either receive the intervention at the beginning of the study or at the end of a two to three year follow-up period. And every time a woman was en- enrolled in the image intervention, a woman from a comparison village who was of similar age and socioeconomic status was selected at random to act as, as the control group. So we were comparing like with like. The study measured outcomes at a number of different levels. Amongst the women that were direct participants in the program, we asked questions around did the intervention actually reduce poverty? Did it have effects on gender inequalities and empowerment? And did it affect levels of physical and sexual violence that these women were experiencing? What's important about the study to to understand is that the study also attempted to measure indirect effects, effects on vulnerability to HIV amongst young people who themselves had little direct contact with the intervention. And these were young people who were either living in the households of these women or young people that were selected at random from the wider community. And the reasons we did this is because the women who directly received the intervention, the microfinance clients, were generally older. The average age of the clients was about 40 years old, and that generally falls outside the age band for those being sort of at the highest risk of HIV infection, which are, which are often younger people, particularly in, in females. So that's the first thing. And the second thing was that previous experience with microfinance suggests that it has the potential to have effects that extend beyond direct program participants and begin to influence changes in the wider community. So what the study examined is whether by trying to tackle some of the key drivers of the HIV epidemic in South Africa, particularly poverty and gender inequalities, and through the knowledge, skills and communication that comes from the, being involved in the intervention, whether there might be wider
0: effects on HIV risk in young people. In terms of the results, clearly the key finding is just over a halving, uh, 55% reduction of intimate partner violence for women given the intervention no changes concerning HIV how do you interpret those results well again we need to look at the results in
1: relation to people who received the intervention directly who were actually exposed to it and got it and those that that were had a much a much shorter degree of exposure a much much reduced exposure so in terms of the direct recipients what we found is that there were there were reductions in poverty there were changes in all dimensions of empowerment that we measured, and as you mentioned, rates of violence were reduced by half. But again, because these participants were older women, the study was not set up to examine the direct effects of the intervention on HIV. So in terms of the indirect effects, looking at the ways in which HIV was influenced among those younger people in the households in the wider community, modest of course, but this was not surprising to us, particularly because it took almost a year to enroll women into the cohort, and another 12 to 15 months to implement the training component of the program, the opportunity to see changes in a two to three year follow-up period it's extremely difficult. So while it's true to say at the community level, rates of HIV infection were unchanged, we were actually quite encouraged by effects in young people in the household, where results suggest levels of communication and openness to discuss sex and sexuality where it was enhanced, both uh, as reports by, reported by the young people themselves and by the women. We found that accessing counseling and testing was somewhat better, and that young people we also began mobilizing their communities around HIV issues. So we think this is a, sort of the start of, of changes, but obviously we'd like to see things um, extended over time.
0: And finally, Dr. Pronick, Crucially, what are the policy implications now as a result of this study? I mean, do interventions like this have a role, do you think, in this type of research? Or should we be a bit more critical and say, well, these findings go some way, but we actually need longer term follow up before we can actually expand, if you like, a kind of approach such Mm -hmm. as this one?
1: Well, sometimes I think in terms of the, the broader implications, I mean, things like challenging issues of poverty, gender inequalities, culture, violence, are, are things that people have been talking about in terms of addressing HIV for the last decade, if not longer. And they often seem abstract and overwhelming and, and sometimes <laughs> impossible to address, to address. And what the study does demonstrate that in a programmatic time frame, in this case, to, after two years of follow-up, you can see measurable changes in some of the key drivers of the HIV epidemic in South Africa. And from a policy standpoint, this is an intervention, microfinance, that is replicable and has enormous opportunity for scale-up. There's currently 100 million microfinance clients worldwide, and these are in countries and areas where poverty and gender inequalities and violence have continually frustrated our best attempts at HIV control. And finally, I think the work suggests that you know, structural interventions are possible, and they should be high on the priority list for governments and donors. They're a critical way to complement the enormous amount of resources that are coming into Africa and elsewhere for more conventional clinical and behavioral interventions. And certainly, while image isn't, isn't definitive, in many ways it's, it's very exploratory, we're quite convinced that investment in further research and development in these types of interventions is essential. Microfinance is just one entry point, and there are likely a great many others.
0: Thanks for talking to the Lancet, Dr. Pranick. Thanks, Richard. This study, and HIV reduction in South Africa in general, is the theme of this week's lead editorial. As I mentioned earlier, this week we published a viewpoint concerning condom use. This essentially says that condoms aren't being marketed properly. Yes, they focus on important public health messages like barrier contraception and the prevention of sexually transmitted infections. But this viewpoint talks about the enjoyment that condom use can have in sexuality. Earlier, I spoke to one of the study authors, Anne Philpott, from The Pleasure Project, based in
2: London, UK. Well, I think we've missed a trick in the public health world. We've been looking at condoms and really trying to motivate people to use them by talking about death and disease and finger wagging and saying that people should use them. Whereas really um, so many products are advertised in the world using sex when they're not very closely related to sex, such as cars or toothpaste, then we should really be using sex to market condoms when they're directly involved with sex. In a way, we've put people off using condoms by focusing on the negatives. When people sell toothpaste, they say, you're going to have a um, fresh breath, you're going to you know, look sexy, you're going to have a great white smile. They don't you know get people to open their mouth and show cavities they've got not from using toothpaste and i think because us in the public health world have really tended to come from that tradition of talking about disease we've put the whole um put that into condom campaigns And we really need to instead talk about all the sexiness associated with condoms and all the fun that you can have with condoms
0: and how do you summarize if you like then the sexiness and fun that's that's currently missing from the public health messaging then
2: People have sex because they like it and they get pleasure from sex, but you would hardly ever see that in any of the public health dialogue around HIV and AIDS. It's almost like the original reason that most people have sex is completely missing. I mean, one of the reasons that I set up with a pleasure project was because at, an AIDS, at the AIDS conference in Barcelona, I got increasingly frustrated that all of the different sessions I went to were so biomedical and just really didn't you know, talk about the obvious fact that people have sex because they like it and we really need to tap into that when we're um, motivating them to have safer sex.
0: Is there actual evidence there that there can be greater sensitivity and greater enjoyment and greater sexual freedom through condom use?
2: In the article we call for more research on this topic but in the article we also include a lot of programmatic information and information about organisations who are using pleasure. We did a global mapping of of pleasure, we called it, of organizations who do use pleasure to motivate um, safer sex. And that includes with young people, faith-based organizations, a whole range of different organizations who've done that. So, for example, um, in Cambodia, a condom marketing organization, PSI, started selling male condoms with lubricant. And we're talking purely about the increased pleasure of using the lubricant. So putting a bit of lubricant in the end of the male condom, making it fit. Feel more squishy and sexy when you're having sex and therefore motivating more people to use male condoms. When I was working in Sri Lanka, I was promoting the female condom and um, sex workers there told me that they were just telling their clients that the female condom was a sex toy. They weren't even, it's a new sex toy that's just arrived in Sri Lanka. They weren't even talking about the fact that it would prevent HIV or or unintended pregnancy. They were saying, I'm going to allow you to insert it in me. Um, it's going to feel really nice, the outer ring's going to rub and cause friction for you, the inner ring's going to rub on your penis. So they were purely talking about the positive sexual elements from using the female condom. And as a consequence, their clients thought it was fantastic. In fact, one of them told me that he thought the outer ring of the female condom looked like a blooming lotus flower outside the vagina. It's so beautiful. So I think that just illustrates that it's all about the positioning of the condom when you first promote it to people and how you talk about what can be pleasurable about using condoms.
0: And finally, Anne Philpott, the, the theme for World AIDS Day this year is uh, concerns Stigma. How, how, how does what you're talking about now relate to stigma, do you think?
2: Well, I think so often when we talk about stigma, we think about stigma and discrimination against people. And we rarely include in that stigmatized product and the fact that it's people find it very hard to buy condoms. They get arrested sometimes for carrying condoms in parts of the world. People assume that you're promiscuous or you, just the whole stigma surrounding condoms. And I think if we started to think more about repositioning condoms as something as pleasurable. I mean, lots of um, women have said to me that they find it very sexy when a man uses a condom without having to be nagged and will actually um, produce it. And that's a signal for now we're going to have sex and can be done in a very sexy way and reaffirming his masculinity. So I think we need to also think about the stigma of condoms within the epidemic.
0: Anne Philpott, concluding this week's podcast.